We are in uh, Genesis 46, so please turn back there if you lost your place. Genesis 46. And it is so good for us to be in this particular section of Scripture, especially in these days. I've just been so fascinated by the way that God works in this season and in this time. And I think you'll see the relevance of our continued study through the book of Genesis as we address the text today. Mitch did a wonderful job reading those verses, but I want to reread just the first four verses of chapter 46 to, to reintroduce you to exactly where we are in this story. Genesis 46, allow me to read verses 1 through 4. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. I have a geometry question for you this morning. I think it may actually help you better understand this text. It's really simple. You don't even have to answer out loud, but I think you would know the answer. What is the shortest distance between two points? What is the shortest distance between two points? Thank you. Somebody answered out loud anyway. Wonderful. We all know it. I saw the smiles on your face. We know that the shortest distance between any two points is indeed a straight line. And friends, don't we really love some straight lines? I especially love it in just the normal day-to-day of life. I love things to be simple, plain, easy, straightforward. You know, I even like living in Naples for that reason. All the roads are at right angles. <laughs> like if I know, I know the beach is that way, and it doesn't matter which road I go on, I'll end up at the beach. And if I want to go north, I go that way. I love that. As opposed to the hometown I grew up in, you have no idea where a road will take you. I mean, anytime you look at a Google map to try to get from point A to point B, it'll send you five different directions, and all of them are inconvenient. And so we long for simplicity, for a straightforward approach to life. We, we love for things to be simple, direct, short, sweet. I mean, if picking a flight, we want the direct flight, not the one with multiple layovers. We prefer to not have a line. We don't really enjoy traffic. We don't like congestion. We, we love for things to go like as we would expect them to. <laughs> and if this is true in our day-to-day lives, how much more true is this in our longing for the life in Christ still yet to come? On a temporal perspective, from a temporal perspective, we long for things to be straight and easy and predictable. And yet, on an eternal perspective, it would seem to us that it would be, I mean, if God's in control of everything, that much more straight. (laughs) Especially when it comes to the promises of God. Like, if God promises something, why wouldn't He just directly do it? Like, what's the deal with diversions and disappointments and perceived detours 
I mean, we want this in our life, like we wonder, like in our own personal sanctification, Lord, you promised that I would be more like Jesus, and yet, why do I still battle the same sins over and over again? Why does it feel like I'm wandering in the wilderness? Lord, I know that you want my family, my marriage in particular, to represent the gospel, but but why does my relationship like swing like a pendulum from terrific to troublesome? Lord, I know that you want me to represent you in my home, and I should bring up my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and, and yet, why does it seem so hard, so difficult? Why are they always picked off with such peculiar temptations? What is it that leads them astray? Why does God allow that to happen? We want to represent God in our work. We think it should just be a straight line. We show up at work, we're going to be successful, and everybody's going to like us and then ask questions like, oh, please tell me, why are you such a great worker? What is it about you that's so different? And yet, (laughs) we struggle with our own job responsibilities, and even when we do things well, the people around us don't ask those questions. They can still find something wrong. We would be hoping that in this time of coronavirus that our neighbors would have seen our faith and they would have reached out to us via Nextdoor or Facebook or whatever and said, how is it that you are just so trusting in the Lord right now? And yet, I'll tell you, honestly, in the last two months, I've had fewer evangelistic conversations than I had in the months before that. People aren't talking, and I'm thinking, like, where's the straight line here? Like, I was thinking that, like, this is how it would unfold. This is exactly how everything would work out, and yet it's not. It's not. What is up with the delays and the detours and the diversions? Why is it that the promises of God don't unfold directly before us? You're not the only one to ask that question. I imagine that Jacob had asked this several times by this point. Here was a man that we've been studying over the last few months that was very familiar with the frustration of a detour sign. I mean, even from his very birth, it was decreed that he was going to be the superior brother and that he was going to be the one that inherits the family name, and yet it doesn't unfold that way, does it? He actually ends up exiled from the very family that he's supposed to lead. And then, while in exile with this uncle, he gets mistreated by him, and he's supposed to be raising a family, and then he's persecuted further. And then when he gets the chance to come back home, he's threatened by his, for- his brother, and then threatened by his father-in-law, and then his kids fall to pieces. I mean, even to the point of c- committing genocide on an entire village. I mean, like... It- You talk about a guy who was hoping to have a straight path in life and could have had every expectation of things following through in a way that would be good and convenient and nice, and yet none of it happens for Jacob. He will, in this text, actually call his days few and evil. (laughs) Few and evil. Few and bad. And so he wonders why. Why doesn't the plan of God just unfold directly before us? I mean, you talk about a detour. Joseph did not directly experience the promises that God had given him. There were so many side roads that he had to go down. And here, in this particular text, he will face the final diversion. 
God had promised him a couple things very clearly. One, you will have this land, talking about the land of Canaan. The second thing that he promised him very clearly is that you would become a nation. And yet here, Mitch read it in Genesis 46, I mean 45. Three different times we are told that Jacob will have to go down to Egypt. He will not just get the land, but he will have to leave the land. He will not become his own nation, but he will have to prosper under another nation. Did you notice that in the reading, you look at chapter 45, verses 9 through 11, and then again in verse 13, and then again in verses 17 through 20, and it's three different times there's this clear command, you will have to go down to Egypt. (laughs) You will have to leave the place that I had promised you. You will be taking a detour. And it doesn't make any sense. How do you get the land by giving it up? How do you become a nation by existing under another, depending on another superpower? Like, how does that work? And so we'll read the story to find out. What we want to see in this is how God works through divinely intended diversions. This is an account of how God works through divinely intended diversions. And it can help you. It can help you walk in faith and obedience when things aren't going the way you expected them to. That's typical in a story like this. We need to actually follow the narrative. And then we'll review it for a couple of principles we can take away. But the story unfolds along rather... um, simple lines. Uh, You've got in verses 1 through 4, assurance from God. Uh, We already read that, which is followed by obedience from Jacob in verses 5 through 27. It's going to be really clear that he obeys God and does what he says. And then there's going to be this arrangement by Joseph to, to try to get them in the right space at the right time. And by the way, if you aren't feeling the pressure of moving, if you've never like moved before, which I think we all have, You're going to miss some of the impulse of this as he's moving everybody to a strange place. And yet, God arranges some things through Joseph. And then we'll see the outcome of it in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 47. But the assurance from God in verses 1 through 4, I'm not going to read it again, but you notice what was there. There was this hesitation on the part of Jacob. It says that he took his journey, right? And that he's leaving, presumably from Hebron, which is more in the middle of the land of Canaan. And he makes his way south down to Beersheba. Now, you need to be like, aware of just some ge- geographical like, facts here. Uh, Beersheba is the southernmost tip of the promised land. I mean, like it's the jumping-off point, if you will. If he's going to make it to Egypt, he's going to have 150 miles of desert from this point. So it's like past the point of no return. Like He makes his way to the line of the promised land, and before he goes anywhere else, before he leaves it, he makes it to the southernmost point, he stops, he sacrifices to God, he engages God in prayer and says, basically, are you sure? (laughs) And all of you know that feeling of finality that comes from walking away from something. I mean, we see it in small ways, like when we're about to leave the hotel room and we put the keys on the inside, and we're like, all right, did everybody check everything? All right, I'm letting the door go. Or when you sell the house and like 
do we really want to do this? Are we really going to let this go? I mean, like, the kids grew up here. We like this place. Are we really going to take that move forward? That's exactly the pressure that he's feeling right now. He's already packed everything up. He's at the very end of this thing, and it's either do or die. And yet there's some sense of hesitation on his part as he stops. And you would say, well, he just stops in Beersheba and he sacrifices. It doesn't seem that big a deal. Well, it is a big deal because what is the first thing that God says to him? You look in verse 2, and he says, Jacob, Jacob. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. What did God rename him? Israel, God's fighter. And yet here he calls him Jacob. Jacob, what is this? It is some insight into how he was operating psychologically at the moment. Jacob is the name that is most frequently associated with his fear and failure. Here he is about to step into this new journey of faith, and he is sensing some reticence because not only does God call him by his old name, but then the first thing he's going to say to him is, don't be afraid. You don't tell somebody to not be afraid unless you think they're afraid. And friends, I'm pretty sure that God doesn't just think it, he knows it. This guy's fearful. And yet God here will reassure him, and he's going to tell him, like, look, I am with you. That is like the major promise that shows up in the life of Jacob over and over and over again. I am with you. I am God, the God of your father. He reminds him of who he is. He says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. As countercultural as it seems, you're going to leave this land to get this land. As countercultural as it seems, you're going to forgo being a nation here to become a great nation somewhere else. It's crazy. And what's the key to making this thing work? The presence of God. He says, I will be with you. I will take you down there. I will bring you up again. And he even leaves this sweet assurance, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. People my age don't really think about that very much. But those of you who are a little closer to the grave are probably even concerned about who would be around your bedside when you die. And what does he say here? This long lost son that you love so much, he's going to be the one to close your eyes in death. Don't worry. This seems really crazy, but it's going to turn out for good. There's assurance from God, which is followed up by obedience from Jacob. Look at verses 5 through 7, and you're going to see a summary of this obedient response. It says, Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now you see the overview of what's happening here? This was absolute obedience. It was radical, not partial. What does he do here? I mean, the text is saying he went all in. I mean, he did not leave anything behind. He took all of his property, all of his children, his children's children. They picked up the entire operation, if you will. Hundreds of people, by the way. Lots of properties to support them. And they take their stuff down to Egypt, exactly like God had commanded him. So he's not afraid of this. He's he's radically all in. And so you get this overview, but then I want you to notice, because... This is what I love about a church like this where we have a high view of Scripture. 
Notice the details that are provided. We don't just want to like gloss right over verses 8 through 27. I'm going to read these names, okay? So cut me a break. <laughs> um, I'm going to do my best. But I want you to notice what's happening here. See if you can get a feel for the exhaustive obedience of Jacob in this. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Homuel, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sarad, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters, number 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodai, and Erali. The sons of Asher, Imnah, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. Are you noticing the pattern here? All of these children are being organized according to the mother that they came from. We've got two down. We've got two more to go. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and Joseph in the land of Egypt were born, Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him, and the sons of Benjamin. Bela, Becker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupam, Hupam, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. Notice the precision. He wants you to know like the exact numbers. And here's the summary. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons and wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. 70. It's kind of fascinating that the author would give us that much detail to get us to the number 70. 70, as you may well know, was actually a great round number for completion. I mean, we know that 7 was that kind of like perfect number, but 70 is just another expression of that. You can look at other places in the Old Testament where it will talk about 70 people representing an entire clan, an entire generation, uh, an entire group. It's talking about completion, completion. If you want to, read Exodus 24. You'll see how it totals to 70 people. You'll see the same thing in Judges 8 and 12. Or if you count up all the generations in Genesis chapter 10, you're going to come up with 70. The whole point is that what we've got here by this fancy math, and by the way, I've done it. It takes a few hours. It works out. (laughs) Is that he left nothing behind. Everyone that needed to be there was there. What we have here is an embryonic picture of Israel, the nation of Israel moving into Egypt. 
This is the official register, if you will. The obedience of Jacob is complete. There, he doesn't leave anything behind. And what he's met with then is this arrangement from Joseph. Now, what's so funny to me about these next few verses is that you would think that the big like, climax of this thing is going to be the reunion of Jacob and his son Joseph. Like, but interestingly, the, the previous story in Genesis 45 makes a big deal out of the reunion between Jacob and his brothers, and here it's only going to mention the reunion with Jacob and his dad like, eh, they got together. You know what it is going to focus on? And this just like blows my mind. Like I would not have written the story this way. It's going to focus on the land of Goshen. Four different times in these few verses, we're going to see Goshen, 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 Goshen. And we only mentioned the reunion of his dad one time, and you're wondering, like, what in the world is going on here? And I think you'll see why in just a moment. So let's look at these verses, 28 through 34, and see if you can see the significance of this particular land that uh, Joseph is trying to arrange for them. Verse 28, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers, to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, and he's arranging this plan here, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds. For they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. Now, this is Joseph coaching his brothers. He's saying, you're going to meet Pharaoh. This is what you need to tell him. Verse 33, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from youth even until now, both we and our fathers. And here's the whole point. In order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, (laughs) for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph is coaching them through this, and he is really intent on this land. He's already told them previously that he wants them in this particular place, and we've got to be asking ourselves, well, what's the big deal? Well, again, you look on a map, and you see where Goshen is located in the land of Egypt. One, it was a very fertile piece of land. But secondly, it's on the northeastern, let me use my uh, invisible map for a minute, Egypt's down here, Canaan's up here. It's in the northeastern portion of Egypt. Why is that significant? Because at some point, they're going to have to leave this place. And if you're going to leave, you don't want to go through the middle of it. You already want to be on the edge of it. The second thing that's interesting about Goshen is it's unsettled territory. They not only need protection but they also need preservation from the surrounding culture. They are not to lose their identity and be subsumed into Egyptian culture. They kind of need to be their own little commune, like out-separated from the main drag, if you will. And so what he does is Joseph is trying to get them in this particular spot that will keep them isolated from the rest of Egypt. So that's the plan. It's like, all right, Dad, you come down here, and I'm going to fix this for you. we just got to get you in this particular place. And if we do this, you're going to have what you need, and you're going to be protected for years to come so that when you leave, it's going to be safe. And let's see if the plan works. The guys get the chance to execute in chapter 47. 
And we'll see those verses together, verses 1 through 6. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. They just happened to be there. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan, and now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my flock. They get exactly what they were bargaining for, and even better. Because not only do they get this land in Goshen, but now some of them will have access to work for Pharaoh himself. One of those cushy government jobs, right? With benefits. They, they actually are going to get one of those. I mean, so they're going to have provision from Pharaoh himself. They've got land, which was unheard of. You don't let other people, aspiring nations, settle on your property. <laughs> and yet that's exactly what happens here. God was kind to them. They, they plan for Goshen. They get Goshen. And here's the cool thing to me. Here, the embryonic nation of Israel will gestate in the womb of Egypt. For the next couple hundred years, this foreign superpower will give this budding nation everything they need to become a formidable nation. This was part of the plan, friends. From the very beginning, this was part of the plan. You go back to Genesis chapter 15, where God is promising. He's promising Abraham that he's going to make him a great nation, and that he's going to give him land, right? You remember this, land, promise, blessing, seed. And he tells them, hey, there's going to be this stint in which your children are going to go down to Israel, I mean, excuse me, to Egypt. And they're going to stay there for a little while, and then they'll come back up to this land. Nobody ever references this promise, and yet it is the one that was there. This wasn't some accident. This isn't like, oh man, there's a wreck in the road, therefore we need to send you down this street. He wanted to send them down this street all along. That's why I say it is a divinely intended detour. It isn't just like, oh man, there was a famine. Oops, we need to send them down here for a little while. God is in control of it all. It is like a, a grand chess game that he is moving every piece at the right time. And he gets them exactly where they need to be. To what end though? Why did, would he ever send the famine in the first place? Why didn't he just directly give them the land, right? That's the whole question we're asking ourselves. We like straight lines. Why is this thing so curvy? We need to see the conclusion of the story, the outcome, if you will, the outcome for everyone. The outcome is disclosed in verses 7 through 12. And I just want to read a, a few verses for you. I want to see if you can pick up on it. Why would God be doing this? Why would he send them on this detour? Well, verse 7, then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. 
Now, I, I don't get if um, you get what's going on here, but I want you to notice like how weak Jacob is. It says that Joseph has to stand him up before Pharaoh. <laughs> like, we're talking about a decrepit old man standing before one of the most powerful men in all the world. And what happens? Jacob blesses that man? <laughs> like, it doesn't even make any sense. You, you, like, he doesn't have anything to offer. And yet Joseph finds it so important that Jacob comes in and blesses this powerful pagan ruler. And notice verse 8, and Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? You've got to keep in mind, historically, the Egyptians were obsessed with long life. That was the whole point behind these big pyramids. They were hoping for like an eternal stint of life, that those people would wake up somehow, and that's why they were wrapped as mummies, so that they could have their bodies preserved, and that's why they stuffed those things full of gold, so that they could, I guess, sit there and count it in those little tombs. <laughs> they give a, uh, I mean, they give two cents about the afterlife. They want eternal longevity. And so he says to this man who's so old, he's like, how did you live to be this long? And notice what Jacob says. The way that he views his life is so interesting. He's not confident at all. He says, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. Jacob may not see what's going on here. I mean, notice his own disclosure. He says, few and evil are the days of my life. By the way, when you see the word evil in your Old Testament, Hebrew word is ra, which can sometimes mean moral evil, and sometimes it just means bad. <laughs> like, my life has been bad. Sure, Jacob's life has had some moral evil indeed, but what he's talking about here is it's been a bad life. He doesn't see it, but we see it. What is happening here? Why has God allowed all of this to happen? It is so that blessing would come to an undeserving pagan nation. God detours them so that he would be able to. This budding nation of Israel would do what it was designed to do, and that is bring blessing to foreign nations. Friends, I am not reading Matthew 28, 19, and 20 back into the Old Testament text. This is the design from the very beginning. God had a heart to reach the world. He wanted to restore worldwide blessing. It wasn't just about Israel. He would bless Israel so that they would be a blessing to the nations. If you want a reminder of that, you would simply look back to that interesting passage right at the very beginning where, where Joseph is blessed of God. The first time that he comes across God, face to face, if you will, in verses 13 to 15 of Genesis 28, he, this is what he tells them. This is the first words he ever hears from God. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. 
Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Do you see that that was the design from the very beginning for the seed of Abraham? That they would be a blessing to the nations. And so, for them to be a blessing to the nations, guess what? They've got to be with the nations. (laughs) They've got to spread out. And so God sovereignly spreads them to areas in which they could advance His glory. This is the way that He works. And it's an interesting picture when you start to put your entire Bible together because you see that this is the way that the seed of Abraham would always work. It would be the ultimate seed of Abraham who would be diverted from what seemed to be the clearest course of action. Jesus, Son of God, would be born among humble family and dwelling, and yet he would rise up from that specially blessed of God in a unique way that no one ever had been, the Holy Spirit resting upon him, enabling him to perform these miracles to the degree that on some occasions people would even try to crown him king immediately. And at the peak of his fame, at the height of his glory, when you're thinking that, oh, it's all going to work out great, It plummets down to nothingness, it seems. I mean, one of his own betray him. He actually has the the Jewish rulers who are supposed to herald him as king are actually operating against him and then send him to his shameful death. And you're thinking, like, what a diversion. What in the world? Like, why does he just come and rule? Like, why does he just, like, set up the kingdom right then? Because he had something else that he wanted to do. He wasn't just existing for the nation of Israel. He would come to redeem the sins of the entire world, at least all who would believe in him. And so God always, or tends to always work in these diversionary ways. It's never a straight course. This is what the seed of Abraham is supposed to be, blessing to the nations. This is what Jesus has done for us, and this is what he intends for us to do and others. When God is sending you down some strange paths, it may not just be for your own personal benefit, but maybe for the benefit of another. That's what the gospel is. And so we see that one of the purposes of this diversionary plan, if you will, is that God is wanting to bless the nations, but that's not all. That's not all. He hasn't forgotten about his plan for them. Notice verses 11 and 12. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And here's your resolution. Listen to this. And Joseph provided his father his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. (laughs) They get what they need. God used this thing to provide for them, to give them everything that they needed. Look at verse 13, by the way, if you just want to contrast like what the spiritual environment's like out there. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by the reason of the famine. Hey, just get a picture real quick. They would not have survived apart from this diversion. If Jacob would have said, hey, you know what? I think I'm just going to hang out here. I'm just going to wait this thing out. You know, this is the land that you promised me. Thanks, but no thanks, God. I think my plan works better. What would have happened? There would be no nation of Israel. So it is for the good of the nations, it is for the good of God's people 
the whole story here <laughs> reminds me of the timeless words of that sage philosopher and theologian of years gone by, Rascal Flats. God bless the broken road that led me straight to you. It's an interesting song. And yet, I know what he's talking about, and yet I can't help but think, is this not the way that God works? He sends us down these broken roads, these detours, these disappointing and painful diversions. And all the while, it leads us straight to where He wants us to be. In light of this, friends, there are some strategies that we would draw from this text that imply how you would progress down your own broken road. Whether it be one that you haven't faced yet or one that you're in right now, let me assume for a moment that some of you in here today are on a pretty decent path. You like the way things are headed right now, and yet you know <laughs> that if things stay true to course, that God will probably intervene at some point future. You know that the detour is coming. You need to prepare, and how would you prepare for that? I'd give you this simple piece of advice from the Scriptures. You need to reflect on how God has worked in the past. That needs to be a regular habit of the people of God. Reflect on how God has worked in the past. I mean, where, think about it, where has he sent you? <laughs> where have, I mean, think back to those times, those painful moments in which you thought, there ain't no way that God's really at work here, and then you find out, oh, I see. <laughs> you understand that if, if Jacob would have remembered, if he would have remembered the ways that God had kept sending him down these side roads to get him exactly where he wanted to be, I don't think that Jacob would have been able to say that his days were few and evil. I mean, you think about that exile from his family, how painful it was for him to leave his mother, and yet what happened through that? That is where he would meet his beloved bride and that he would begin to create this budding family of God. Or you think about that time that he was mistreated by his father-in-law, tricked twice, ended up being stuck there for 20 years, laboring away underneath the injustice of his own father. And what happened out of that? He became one of the wealthiest men in the world. Or maybe you remember the time when he was leaving that place of exile in Padan Aram, and he was making his way down to the promised land, and yet there were two big threats, one on his tail and the other up front. It was his, his father-in-law chasing after him, it was his brother coming toward him, and it seems like he's going to die. And yet what did God do? God used that entire situation to resolve the situation with his father-in-law and then to reconcile him with his brother. Just remember that, that wrestling match that he had that one night before he was going to meet his brother. And, I mean, like, and it is painful. I mean, he walks with a limp for the rest of his life, and yet what will he always know or should know? That God is with him in a special way, has blessed him. He is a prince of God. He will prevail among the nations. 
I mean, if Jacob could have only remembered, if he could have remembered, I don't think that he, he would have thought that his, his life was that bad. God had been at work through so many counterintuitive ways. And friends, we need to reflect on how God has worked in the past. How do we remember? It's the normal habits of Christian life. One of the most tangible that I would give you and submit to you today is that of communion itself. (laughs) Today we have prepackaged communion stuff, which is cool. I'm glad that we can do this even more safely. What is it about this? What's this point? Well, among other things, this is about remembering. It's about tactile reminders of God's grace, broken body, shed blood, that diversion, if you will, of a crucified Messiah, ultimately being met by a resurrection and his reign and rule and his soon return. Like we look and see like, oh yes, I saw how he worked that one out for me. This is the way that he worked. Communion. Another way that you remind yourself of these things is just through normal intake of the word of God. Through preaching like this, of course, and then your regular reading of the scriptures. And may I encourage you, friends, don't just stick to the 22 books of the New Testament. But it's the Old Testament in particular that shows these beautiful, huge stories of the way that God takes horrible situations and redeems them for his good. That's how we remember. And then sometimes we just remember by being intentional about it, like telling other people about how God has worked in us in times past. Can I give you like a, it's, I don't know, it's a quasi-challenge. Like I'm not going to feel bad if you don't do it, but it'd probably be a helpful exercise. Maybe at some point between now and next week, you get together either with your family or someone in your small group, and you share with them a way that God took you down a broken and burdensome road only to get you to where he wanted you to be. I think it's good to talk about those things every once in a while. Instead of pretending like our lives are so picture perfect, why don't we actually open up and just tell somebody about a time, an instance, a place where God took us down a horrible path seemingly and ultimately ended up where it needed to be. Dads, your children need to hear that. Church members, we need to hear that from one another. And then a practical way to close out that little exercise is pray and thank God for the providential ways that he's worked in the past. And so we need to reflect on how God has worked in the past. But let's say this. Let's imagine that we, you know what, Uh, Justin, this isn't a hypothetical for me. I'm like, I'm in it right now. I do not like this road. I do not like the way things are headed right now. I'm already bothered by it. I think this is true of many of you. It could be true of you globally, and it could be true of you personally. Listen to that siren. You like that? Like knowing what's going on right now in this world? I mean, this is becoming regular around our country in these particular days. Would anybody say, hey, you know what? America's just on a great path right now. We're just really happy about everything. <laughs> or I got emails yesterday that said I needed to stay in my neighborhood I couldn't go out because there was supposedly a protest going on on the corner. I got five of them from the same lady in the office. Now, I obviously wasn't that concerned, but really. 
Would anybody say, yep, yep, we're exactly where we need to be right now. Globally, it's just, we're firing on all cylinders. I mean, I love the economy right now. I'm happy with the political atmosphere. I I just love the the ethnic diversity that's being celebrated in our country right now. Or or the anarchy, that's fantastic. No, nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying that. We're thinking, come Lord Jesus, what in the world is going on here? And what may, may be true globally can also be true personally. When you struggle with the same sins over and over, when relationships are broken with people that you love, and when the, the, your own personal finances seem to be out of check, maybe you are somebody that has lost a job or you know someone that has. I mean, I'm telling you, it is, it is a mess. And so what do you do then? Let's say that you're already in it. You need to expect. You need to expect God to act faithfully in the future. If you're not in it yet, you need to reflect. You need to go ahead and build up some stamina, if you will, by reflecting on how God has worked in the past. But friend, right now, I call on you to trust him in faith, to expect that he will act faithfully in the future. We all have human coping mechanisms, right? We have these ways that we try to deal with the stress of life, of frustrated expectations, and those human means can be things as, as banal as exercise and getting plenty of sleep and talking to someone about it. And I'm not degrading any of those things. Those are good things. We are physical, spiritual creatures. But friends, we need something more than a walk in the park for what we're facing right now. And that is the divine resources afforded us by means of the Holy Spirit. It is faith and trust in a sovereign God who will work things out in the end. You cannot trust on your human mechanism. You must repl- I mean, respond to this in a supernatural way. You cling to the promises of God. It's so interesting to me that here, God points Jacob back to promises that he already made. When you read Genesis 46, 1 through 4, you'll find out that God has already promised this same thing, that he's going to be with them wherever he goes two other times in the past. He doesn't need something new. He needs to remember what God has already told him. Friends, it's pretty clear. God's already given us the promises that we need. We now need to just trust them. You don't need a new chapter in your Bible. You need to master what you've already got. And we do this, we do this practically, the the spiritual way to cope with these distressing diversions, if you will, is first by formulating a habit of prayer. I mean, Paul, writing from a prison, by the way, tells the Philippians to rejoice in everything. (laughs) And, And listen to this, he says, don't worry about anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. What's the response? Pray, and pray with thanksgiving. When you feel that anxiety, I'm asking you, really, when you feel it, like, what do you do? I think we self-medicate too much. Some people are just looking for diversion, so they, they jump down the rabbit hole of, you know, some kind of electronic media, or maybe they rely on some type of self-medication. I know some people who would prescribe a, a glass of wine for their ales, Friends, substances and social media aren't the way that we respond to difficulty. You know what a tangible, actionable way to respond to distress is? Pray. It's pray. 
pray with thanksgiving. Like, thank God for the ways that he's worked and then ask him to relieve the anxiety that's in your heart. And then finally, I say, just practically cling to his promises and his word. Immerse yourself in the word of God. Friends, if you're distressed right now, I promise you, if you would read the book of Psalms as much as you read the news, you'd probably be in great shape. But sometimes you won't have your Bible with you, which is unlikely, I understand, because we all have smartphones of some kind. But sometimes you need quicker access. I admitted that it's my weakness, but just because it's my weakness doesn't mean I don't do it. You need to memorize the Word of God. Can I give you, I'll give you this, like, my go-to for the last three months, my go-to Bible verse, passage for the last three months that I've been recalling, Psalm 46. Psalm 46. Which is so especially pertinent during this time, because when you read it, you'll see. Three times it talks about it being the God of Jacob, the God of Jacob, the God of Jacob is with you. Friends, you need that. I mean, really, when was the last time that you actually, not hypothetically, but actually quoted scripture to yourself to relieve anxiety. And yet that is the expectation. That is the means given us. Friends, I don't mean to be trite or cute, but I don't mind stealing a phrase that we all can remember. God has indeed blessed the broken roads. He is at work. His plan progresses not in logical, linear ways. But as we sang earlier, our God moves in a mysterious way. A mysterious way. So let's trust Him. No matter how painful the path, no matter how disappointing the diversion. Father, we need your help to do this well. Our minds are so small, your plan is so big, and we want perspective. We want to know the why here and now. And yet you haven't fully disclosed the details of the why beyond your glory, the gospel advancing to the nations, and our own personal good. Sometimes we don't even see how that happens, (laughs) How does this bad situation lead to the gospel advancing? How does this bad situation uh, lead to my good? How does this bad situation uh, lead to the glory of God? We just can't even put it together. And so concern us more then, until you do decide to disclose these things to us, concern us more with the how, not the why. I pray that we would respond faithfully in confusing, distressing, painful times. Give us confidence. May it be our habit, Lord, to reflect on the good ways that you've worked in the past, to expect you to work in great ways in the future. Strengthen the faith of your people here and now. Even use this time around your table to do the same. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name.